You're listening to What the Dev, the podcast of SD Times. I'm Dave Rubenstein, Editor-in-Chief of SD Times, and I'm speaking today with Fletcher Heisler. He's the Director of Developer Enablement at Vericode, and we'll be talking about um, security and working from home uh, in the uh, pandemic and uh, probably beyond because people will continue to work from home past that. How you doing, Fletcher? Excellent. Thanks for having me, Dave. Good, good. Thanks for uh, coming back. I know we just did a webinar about a week ago, uh, which I, I would encourage people to uh, to view on the uh, sttimes.com website to get even more uh, depth into the topic. But uh, we wanted to just uh, circle back with you and, and focus on a couple of key points that we thought were important takeaways from the last uh, last session we had. So, uh, of course, one of them is um, working remotely and trying to find ways to keep developers and security people engaged. And so what, what are you recommending? What are you seeing? What are you telling people to do who are trying to do those things? Yeah, I think developers are, are uniquely well-suited to uh, handling working from home. Many of them have been doing it quite a while, and obviously most of our work is, is digital anyway. Um, but as I, I mentioned when we were speaking earlier, it comes with its own challenges. Um, and it's easy to fall into some traps there where you, you uh, aren't used to realizing that there are, uh, you know, a, a lot of opportunities on the side to just uh, have a quick chat in the hall or ask a mentor um, in person a, a question that might not feel like it's worth, uh, you know, an entire email or something like that. So uh, finding those opportunities to uh, stay connected to your team uh, without just hopping from uh, from online call to online call all day long as well. Um, I think it's it's really all about balance and and being uh, making sure that you're you're not losing pace with uh, those around you that you're uh, still keeping everyone in the loop uh, even though you might be in in very different physical places. Right. I know that's really uh, been been an interesting problem for us. Uh, trying to prioritize the importance of communication is something good enough to have an email. I don't need a response right away. Or uh, I want a response. Do I just send a Slack message or do I get the team together and have a Zoom call? Does it raise, does the issue raise to that level? So we're still kind of fumbling around a little bit, uh, you know, with that kind of stuff. And I'm sure other organizations are, are kind of feeling that, uh, feeling that as well. But in terms Definitely. of from the team aspect, so how are we bridging the gap now between the development team and security people who if they were in the same building, you know, would be working together in a room and, and now we're doing it remotely. And so how do we keep them kind of on the same page and keep them communicating well? Yeah, developers, you know, a lot of the work is very independent. Um, they might be a little bit meeting allergic because, uh, you know, unlike if you're in a, a sales position or something where you need to be speaking with people all the time to get your job done. As a developer, it's a lot of solo effort or, or small teams, you know, within your own uh, engineering organization. And so, uh, you know, as someone in security reaching out to development, I wouldn't recommend walking down the hall and poking them on the shoulder to get their attention. Um, obviously, that's not an option now. <laughs> and so it's even more important to make sure that you're fitting into the existing flow of developers. Um, and by that, I mean, using the tools that they use, you know, you're, you're not giving them extra steps to take. You're not um, you know, providing uh, additional new tools, new practices uh, on top of all the things that they already have to take care of. Um, so as an example, you know, if, if uh, developers primarily use Slack to chat with each other uh, rather than email, 
maybe consider uh, a Slack channel that's dedicated to uh, particular security topics or security uh, back and forth communication with a team. Um, likewise, if they have certain development and deployment pipelines, uh, how can you get security integrated into those existing tools? So they don't have to go through a big audit or fill out a bunch of checkboxes or set up a separate call and do a meeting. They can just have that be part of their their automated flow in, in some way that uh, doesn't feel as interruptive. And it's it's also, therefore, something that's not as easy to, to forget or to deprioritize. Mm-hmm. Good one. Now, are you seeing in a lot of the organizations that you work with, uh, are developers taking on more security on their own? Are, are these organizations kind of creating teams that have a tester, a security person, a developer, all kind of working together as a team, which uh, I guess depends on the organization. They're probably working at it both ways, but what are you seeing out there? Yeah, we, we had DevOps and then we had DevSecOps and we'll see how many more hats we can uh, place on top of a developer's head before the the uh, next decade is done. Um, but, you know, all of that shifting left really does mean that uh, we are automating a lot, we're moving a lot to the cloud. And because of that, uh, a lot of those additional tasks and areas of expertise even uh, fall on a developer's shoulders. Um, and so, you know, that combined with the fact that uh, technology is, you know, increasingly changing rapidly, uh, where I might be using a a new JavaScript framework to roll out my particular application that was invented two months ago. Mm -hmm. Um, There's really no way that a small security team can scale to many hundreds, many thousands of developers doing that all at once. And so it's definitely uh, at least a shared responsibility that developers need to be uh, aware of these security issues and, and looking out for their code and their team uh, firsthand. And so that's also why, you know, obviously we focus a lot on training. Um, security can uh, help as much as they, they can, but uh, the earlier that you can make sure that there uh, are, <laughs> are not vulnerabilities introduced into code, the better. They're going to save lots of time, lots of money, and, and lots of uh, people hours that way. Um, but likewise, you know, teaching developers the right uh, tools and skill sets when it comes to security for their particular language, you know, their particular scenario. It's one thing to say, you know, you're, you're familiar with a broad concept. It's another to say, how do I put that into practice and, and make sure that I'm following best practices and, and not falling into uh, any gotchas for what I, uh, you know, as a developer am, am uh, particularly building right now. Right. Well, one of the things I wanted to just kind of circle back a little bit to the point that you made of, you know, uh, how many more things can we pile on top of developers before they their brains explode? But with now them being asked to do more in terms of testing, more in terms of security, more in terms of other things, doesn't that kind of go against the whole agile DevOps practice of releasing more quickly and getting more features out quickly? Now we're asking, we're putting so much more on them that's got to, by nature, slow them down. And now, especially if we need to say to them, oh, and by the way, you need to understand functional testing. And so you need to you know, get some training in that or security training and things like that. So how, how is that going to work? I mean, ultimately, it's got to get to a point where developers are going to say, enough, I, I, I can't do my job, which is <laughs> writing more lines of code because I'm doing all these other things. Well, there's definitely a balance there. I think... Um a lot of that comes down to having automated and repeatable processes or even 
having um, very clear guidelines ahead of time. So yes, it's one thing if uh, I'm trying to push out my code and now it has to go through five rounds of security reviews and lots of changes, and then I have to start from scratch because I didn't think about this particular edge case. That's going to be a lot to take in, um, and it will slow things down. On the flip side, if I also had to take this through um, you know, my security team to review it line by line, character by character, that's also going to slow things down. So I think there's, there's probably a balance in there of allowing developers uh, as much autonomy as possible, but also giving them very clear guidelines and uh, you know, making the right practical trade-offs as well to, to make sure that uh, you know, you're not slowing everything to a halt, but you're also not introducing vulnerabilities early as well. Is that going to be like an industry-wide standard, or is every organization going to put in place just the things that that they think they need to do? Or? Yeah, good question. I guess that that uh, strikes at a couple different dimensions. When I think of it in terms of security, um, one of the industry standards is the OWASP top ten, as an example, yes. and those are just the ten most common weaknesses of of applications uh, based on a very broad survey. So those include things like SQL injection, which most developers have heard of. Um, but it's it's one thing to say, make sure your code doesn't have anything that, that could lead to SQL injection. It's another to provide that kind of practical training and make sure you know, for your particular Django application uh, running in this particular way, it doesn't have these kinds of vulnerabilities that would be the, the uh, largest risk factors as well. So... I think there's only so much we can do in terms of sort of an industry-wide standard. Um, if you look at PCI as another example, so any companies that have to uh, deal with handling payment, you know, card information, um, PCI requires uh, annual developer training um, specific to industry standard best practices. And they name some categories that they suggest, but they really say, you know, it's up to you to decide what those categories are. Um, and so a, a lot of what we've done, uh, you know, I primarily head up our security labs, which is sort of interactive uh, training through web-based uh, short exercises. And we try to focus on the, the very specific practicalities of, you know, for my Django application that's handling payment information, what issues should I be thinking about here? Um, what best practices, what existing tools should I be using? And a lot of the time, you know, I mentioned automating as much as possible. Uh, a lot of this new technology can help us uh, you know, cover up for, for a lot of those issues and, and be a lot faster in our development processes, so long as we know how to use them well. Uh, there are still, of course, ways to shoot yourself in the foot. Uh, and so you, you have to make sure you're aware of those security concepts and those best practices for your very specific tools. Um, but given the proliferation of languages and tools and frameworks, I don't know that there's any you know, very broadly applicable industry standard um, that, that can apply to uh, every company or even every developer. So, you know, we're going to be looking to developers to take on more of the security role and what have you. Uh, obviously, one place people go for training is conferences. And I know we're not really having a lot of those uh, in-person ones anyway. Uh, with uh, the coronavirus that we're in. So how are organizations actually getting their people trained up or have they kind of put training on hold for now or what, what, uh, what approach are they taking? Yeah, we're actually seeing uh, with Security Labs in particular a lot of uh, evening and weekend activity more than we usually would. And that's not so much necessarily companies that are mandating more training, but it's kind of a 
a really golden opportunity for some of the right folks for professional development. So, you know, I, I would uh, never suggest anything but reasonable work-life balance, which I think is especially important when in these uh, work-from-home days. Um, but there are a lot of folks who are, who are diving in and getting that extra practice, extra experience when they uh, have some free time on the computer as well, uh, in those those off hours as well. Um, in general, you know, we are seeing a lot of um, a lot of companies move to focusing on training and focusing on uh, distance and on-demand training. Um, you know, we've seen lots of conferences that are becoming remote only uh, at sometimes a really incredible uh, pace that they managed to, to turn what used to be a huge conference space into something fully digital. Um, and so I think this is a, a perfect opportunity for training as well to say, sure, we used to have a, a hackathon where we'd all sit in the room together. Why can't we have that as sort of a, an online event as well? You can even, you know, for some of the right teams, have uh, a specific calendar event. So, you know, one of the things that we do is we help run competitions. And you can do sort of a, we call it a capture the flag uh, competition where um, folks are working their way up the leaderboard and it builds a little bit of uh, community and uh, friendly competitiveness. Uh, even though you're, you know, sitting at home uh, far away from your teammates, you can feel like you're uh, still interacting with them and, and going through training and leveling up that way um, as well. Yeah, I know that uh, uh, when we've spoken in the past, you talk about uh, the key of training is to make sure that uh, people are getting a real practice, that it's not just theoretical and not uh, just reading, learning, but actually hands-on stuff. And I guess I think one of the suggestions that you just mentioned, uh, you know, having these uh, kind of digital hackathons uh, remotely uh, is certainly one way to do that. Are there are there other avenues out there for people to get that kind of training? Is that going to be kind of the wave for now while we're, uh, you know, in this remote work thing where uh, people are going to have to try to find these um, digital ways to get the real hands-on experience? Yeah, I think, um, you know, it's up in the air in terms of things like digital conferences, whether that will be uh, a net positive or negative. Uh, a lot of the time, those are about the networking that happens at the event, and, and certainly that will be harder to manage. Um, when it comes to training and, and providing that kind of um, hands-on feedback, again, we, we are working on ways to help scale that across from, especially from security to development, where that might be 100x developers for every uh, AppSec expert on the team. Um, and so, you know, there are ways to, and we've done this with things like Security Labs, um, to provide real applications, um, get a developer some guided practice where they get to uh, hack it, you know, exploit it, see what can go wrong. And then they also get to patch it up and, and practice firsthand. There are a number of um, other community projects. And so things like um, Juice Shop is, is the name of one of those from, from the OWASP community uh, that we've actually uh, taken into our own platform as well, um, since it's open source. Um, but that can be rolled out by any team. Um, it's a, basically a, a very uh, intentionally vulnerable application. Uh, where developers can explore and find, I don't know, 50-some different vulnerabilities um, and see those in context and, and see what really happens. But I think beyond that, uh, it's it's equally important, if not more so, to give developers that kind of hands-on practice writing secure code. Um, you know, as I've, I've had plenty of development experience myself, and I learned how to write code by doing it. I didn't just hear someone talk about it or watch a video. Uh, it's it's a, a hands-on keyboard kind of thing. And so 
we shouldn't think that it's anything different for uh, secure code as well. So um, another quick example that we've seen um, both through security labs, but even just through uh, ad hoc means that, that any company can uh, apply. Um, if you have some sort of bug bounty program or you're scanning your code and, and finding vulnerabilities um, based on those results, rather than you know, sending a, an angry email out to your developers and saying, don't do this again, uh, or even worse, not telling them about it at all, and just having a security analyst take care of the problem. Um, it's much better to form that as a puzzle or a competition and say, you know, there's, there's something wrong here. Let's take a look. Let's figure out how we'll solve that and reward the folks who are able to write that secure code to uh, improve that fix. So I think a lot of it is also around uh, providing the right incentives and that encouragement for writing secure code. Excellent. That's about all the time we have uh, for this podcast. Fletcher, I appreciate your time. Good to talk to you again, as always. And um, we'll certainly like to have you back as, uh, uh, you know, the new OWASP list comes out or things uh, change in security and uh, we can touch base and, and talk again. That would be great. Thanks so much for your time. Sounds great. Thanks, Dave. Okay. This has been What the Dev. I'm Dave Rubenstein, Editor-in-Chief of SD Times. So long for now.